The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I also want to let my listeners know we're also live streaming on, on Facebook, on my Facebook page on Resiliency Within. So this month, we are highlighting the strength, resiliency, and positive contributions of the queer community. My guest today is my friend and colleague, Kay Thomas. And they will discuss the current state of queer and trans rights across the U.S. and the deep history of resiliency within the LGBTQIA2S+. And Kay, I know you're going to explain this to us, what that means. Kay will address how racism, reproductive justice, and the LGBTQIA plus rights are intertwined within recent SCOTUS decisions. We will also explore how embracing the strengths of the queer and trans communities enables us to to, um, choose compassion over comprehension. And we're going to do a deeper dive in terms of what that means um, towards marginalized identities. And lastly, Kay will provide a few tangible ways to be an active ally to the LGBTQIA um, community. So welcome, Kay. Before I, you know, kind of turn over this to you a little bit, I want to share a little bit more about you. You're quite accomplished. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Yes. First of all, you're an educator, a community advocate, a trauma therapist in San Diego, California. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, you are a licensed professional clinical counselor in the state of California And you've worked with people impacted by sexual and relationship violence since 2010, focusing on the LGBTQIA2S plus community. But but you also have a new position. I'm so proud of you that you are the associate director of the LGBTQ plus and allies commons at the University of San Diego. And in this role, um, they work to increase capacity for queer and trans students through programming policy development and education to the larger largest largest to the larger campus community. There is so much more to say about you and I really encourage our guests to go to Voice America to see a lengthier biograph of Kay Thomas. But so Kay, as you're here with me today, what's on your mind right now as we're getting started? Mm, yeah. So my name is Kay. My pronouns are they and she coming to you from unceded Kumeyaay land in San Diego, California. Um, and really what's on my mind, first of all, I happy pride, especially to people who are in San Diego. The national pride month is June, but here in San Diego, we actually celebrate pride in July. And part of the reason for that is, is because when pride first became a thing, when there were these marches and protests, 
all of our community organizers across the nation came together to say, well, how can we make sure that we're not overlapping events so we can move from space to space, city to city and support each other, as well as create networks and structure for activism and advocacy. And so our San Diego Pride happens in July. So I say that we get to celebrate Pride all summer long here in San Diego. And so that's a big thing on my mind. We kicked off Pride this past weekend. It's a week long event for us. Um, and we have our big festival coming up uh, with our our big, big parade on Saturday as well. So that's kind of the biggest thing on my mind. I'm in full celebration mode this week and really trying to focus and lean into the resiliency of the queer community in particular. We have such a rich, deep history uh, that many people don't know because of systematic erasure and oppression. And uh, that's a place for me where I find constant joy and uh, just the, the desire and the resiliency to keep going every day. Well, I have known you to be a very optimistic person and to look at a challenge and say, okay, what can we do about this? Mm -hmm. And I know that you're doing that within your community. And I I guess what I also would like to say that um, this is July and on Resiliency Within, this is Proud Pride Month. And even though it's in June, maybe every month should be Pride Month. Um, Truly. Because it's embracing the community every single month. And remembering all the wonderful resilience and the contributions of the queer community to our, to not only our friendship group, our community, but really to society. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, I'm going to ask you a question and, you know, the get go, because we call the show embracing queer resilience and compassion over Mm -hmm. comprehension. Mm -hmm. So could you share more about the concept of compassion over comprehension and how that relates to the LGBTQ plus rights? Absolutely. You know, I think first and foremost, it's really important for us to kind of think about how we've reached this really weird place where we have all of these echo chambers that we're stuck in because of the internet, because of social media, because of the ways that we've kind of learned to communicate with each other over the last 15 to 20 years with technology. And really what we've seen happen, especially in these last five years on social media, is this big polarization and politicalization, right, of people being on each side. And with that, we've also learned how to disengage from hard conversations, from conflicts and even difficult relationships, because we can say, well, I'm just going to block that person. I'm going to unfollow that person. This space is curated for me. And while I'm all here for that, don't get me wrong, my Instagram is very highly curated for what I want to (laughs) see. Simultaneously, I think that's created this space where we have these really rigid and inflexible boundaries or even beliefs And we don't lean into opportunities for growth and to understand other people better in different ways. And so when I think about the idea of compassion over comprehension, if compassion is the place that we start in, especially with hard conversations, really thinking about how do I hold compassion for the person across from me right now to see their pain, their joy, their dignity, their human nature, um, Oftentimes we get stuck in this place where we really focus on research or, you know, what's evidence-based ideology. And we forget that not everything can be measured or categorized or even fully understood. Um, When I think about this idea of compassion over comprehension, I like to use the example of a car accident. You know, you're driving down the highway and you see a car accident on the side of the road. And is the first thing that crosses your mind, well, what's their political orientation? What's their profession? What are their religious beliefs? Um, What's their sexual orientation? Do you think about those things? Or is the first thing that comes to your mind is like, oh, damn, I hope they're okay. 
the ambulance is here, that car is flipped over, that looks really bad. I hope everyone was okay. And what would that look like if we shifted to that space of compassion in the default of all of our relationships, especially with identities that we don't really understand or that aren't the same as us? And so when we shift to that place of prioritizing and holding compassion for others, it also becomes easier for us to connect, to empathize, and then to ultimately, potentially, eventually understand the experiences of others. But when we focus on a space of comprehension first, we dismiss the humanity and the resiliency that exists within others. So let me ask you this. I mean, compassion is something that is very dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. And I can say that I, I, I try to walk with compassion. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not always easy to walk oh, no. with compassion. And so how do you cultivate compassion? So if you feel like, well, okay, I can maybe be compassionate towards you, but I don't know. You got mm-hmm. that they, them t-shirt on. And I don't know if I can be, if I can <laughs> be compassionate towards you. Right. So, yeah. um, so how, how can we respond? How can we cultivate compassion? If we are seeing, if we're trying to comprehend and our comprehension, our divisiveness is getting in the way mm. and not our compassion and understanding. Yes. You know, I one of the things that I love about my brain is the way that it sits so sweetly in the spot between research and between um, human connection, which is not always something we can research. But I always initially come back to the statistical principle, like think back to algebra in high school, <laughs> right? We're going way back. And the statistical principle that there are more differences within a group than between groups. That's a statistical principle that we've known for a long, long time in the math field, right? But when we think about that and kind of move beyond that and extrapolate that to us as human beings, we often find that the things that you feel like might make you different, that there's actually more similarities between you. Yes, you might not have the same sexual orientation or same gender identity, but Maybe you like the same music, the same TV shows. Maybe you have similar values. Maybe you're both parents or siblings. And so I always think about this idea of of, uh, cultivating compassion and thinking about, first and foremost, how can I find the ways that I am like this person? How can I see my own self in this person right now and their struggle and their experience? And then also leaning into a space of literally just staying curious. I think curiosity. Yes. We talk about curiosity killed the cat, but I think curiosity is really key to hope and to compassion of saying, I just want to know more about this person. I want to learn about who they are, not just, you know, their gender identity or their race or their uh, class, but really who are they as a human? What do they like to do? Who do they want to be? What are the unmet needs they have? And how might those be related to mine? In the same and way. this really comes out of kind and compassionate curiosity Absolutely. To, to find out more about them, to see where those, those intersections might be where, oh, you mean you like the Beatles too? Oh my gosh. I yeah. love Ed, Ed Sheeran. You like Ed Sheeran? Oh yeah. I'm going to go to his concert in September. He's going to be in Los Angeles. So all of a sudden, click, 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 right? right. We have things in common. Now, the one, in common. the one thing that um, I didn't share about your bio is that you are a certified trauma resiliency model practitioner, and you're also a certified community resiliency model mm-hmm. teacher, mm-hmm. and you're senior faculty for the Trauma Resource Institute mm-hmm. that actually sponsors the show. Yeah. But I also want to get your perceptions about how do you think those models intersect with compassion? Do you think mm. learning them helps with cultivating compassion or not? What, what's your, what's your Absolutely. You know, I think 
For me, when I first was uh, introduced to the models, I was introduced to the community resiliency model first and the wellness skills that were associated with that. And what I had to do for myself as I began exploring those skills, because it was really strange to me. It was the first time I had ever fully really been in touch with my body, especially in a space of full sobriety. Um, you know, many of us who have experienced trauma in our lives reach for things to self-medicate in different ways. And that was the first time I had been in touch with my body. And I had to cultivate some self-compassion for myself because there was so much shame and guilt around how I had had to move through the world to survive previously. And when I realized that I had this inherent sense of well-being that I could tap into, it didn't mean that all the trauma was gone. It didn't mean that all the craziness wasn't still happening, but to be able to sit with myself and say, oh man, you have this really difficult feeling right now and that's okay. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to do anything with it. We can just sit with it right now. And then recognizing as I started using those skills with my clients in particular and helping them realize, and we were talking earlier before we, we got on the show about the idea of tears and how much shame comes up for people around tears. And not to say that people can't make themselves cry, but that is generally not what's happening, right? <laughs> tears are a natural response of the immune system, uh, excuse me, the uh, nervous system, not the immune system, the nervous system to regulate itself, to find that sense of self-soothing and a way to cope, a way to express all of the overwhelming sensations we're experiencing on the inside. And there's nothing wrong with that. And so this model really helps me understand and share with my clients as well, how are we shaming ourselves and robbing ourselves and our communities of both self-compassion and compassion when our body is doing the things that it was naturally created to do to help it move through the world? to reach for resiliency over reaching for substances? How do I help embrace this sense of compassion that that nervous system response, that trauma or survival response that's happening right now is because that helped keep that person safe their whole life, or maybe it helped keep me safe my whole life. And how do I give myself grace and compassion and say, this is what you needed to help yourself survive for a long time. And maybe we don't need it anymore. Well, and I think that I, I want to just kind of underscore what you're saying about tears. I've done a little bit of research about tears, the science mm -hmm. of tears, and that there's something called endorphins, which are like our natural um, chemicals that relax our body. And when we cry, um, endorphins are released in our body. And so it actually does help us calm down. And because, you know, have any of you been in a situation where you really didn't want to cry, but the tears came anyway? And so the body sometimes has a way, a road, or maybe a wisdom that the words can't speak and the tears come. And oftentimes there are um, derogatory terms. I mean, even the word, oh, man up, why are you crying? And first of all, that's such a derogatory thing to say to anyone. But, you know, it's really important that no matter how you identify, tears are part of the human experience. And I, mm -hmm. and, and I love that about us humans, that we have this capacity to cry and to release and to feel better because of it. So mm -hmm. just wanted to add that, Kate. Yeah. And I think even just the, the way that nicety politics and respectability politics show up in conversations, personal or professional, oh, well, you're crying. You're so emotional. Well, every thought, every feeling, every belief we have starts as a body sensation, which is also based in emotion. We are emotional humans. Like that's 
that's what makes us humans is that we have emotions, right? And we have all these complex experiences internally that other mammals don't. And so I think it's it's really interesting how we uh, label folks who maybe are feeling an overwhelming sense of emotion and it turns out it comes out as tears, right? And saying like, well, this person's not rational anymore. This person now no longer has any validity. And I think about the queer community in ways, you know, we see folks protesting, you know, this, these ridiculous anti-LGBTQ laws and the recent scoutist decision and all of these things that happen. And folks will look at that and say, well, these people are angry. And so therefore they're not rational. These people are upset. And so therefore they're not rational. And when we stay in that space of what respectability politics, you have to come to me completely calm with this very clear list of things that you want to do. And don't just bring me the problem, bring me the solution. We're actually shifting right back into a space of white supremacy and racism and perpetuating systems of harm against not only uh, marginalized identities, but against everyone as a whole. Um, Like you said, right? Like that idea of like, stop crying and just man up men experience just as much harm from patriarchal white supremacist systems as female, as gender non-conforming people do. Um, and so really recognizing that reality that embracing, whether it's our tears or our emotional experiences is part of embracing our resiliency and increasing our capacity for compassion. Well, and I'm, as you're talking, Kay, you know, I'm a fan. Um, I just think it's so wonderful that the students at the University of San Diego get to have your wisdom and guidance as they may for the first time in their lives, right? Say, I think I'm gay and I've never shared that with anyone. And you can be there to hold the space. Yeah. And so I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about how you're supporting students right now. But before we do that, I want to ask you a personal question. Yeah. Um, So how has your lived experience inspired you to create the work you are clearly passionate about in the world? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, So of course, that's a, that's a long answer and I'll give you the shortest, (laughs) most concise answer I can. It could be Um, long too. Yeah, yeah. We do have an hour, but go ahead. That's true. That's true. Um, You know, so for myself growing up as a multiracial and non-binary person, I grew up in a military oriented home in a fundamentalist Christian home. And I experienced my teenage years in the South in particular. And so it's a really interesting blend of racism, transphobia, homophobia, cis sexism, all of the, the isms, right? In this interesting space, in this sweet spot. And I really saw firsthand how, in particular, in my experience, religion um, created so much harm towards folks like me. I had experiences of my friends, uh, people that I loved, uh, attempting suicide or even completing suicide because of the harm they experienced. I had friends who were sent to conversion therapy um, as a result. And I know that still happens in some states and seeing the way that the mental health, the physical health um, was impacted by these experiences of both physical, sexual, emotional, and spiritual abuse. And so when I turned 18 and I started doing my own work just to be like, whoa, there's something weird going on here and I need to fix it. And for me, that was, you know, going to see a really incredible therapist at the time that held space for me. I was like, oh my gosh, like I want everybody to know what I'm experiencing because I didn't, you know, I often use the example of saying like, you don't really fully, you can never really explain to someone what trauma healing looks like until they've gone through it themselves. It's like trying to explain to somebody who's lived in the desert their whole life Mm -hmm. about what the ocean is like. 
right? They could see pictures and they could watch videos, but you will never understand the power and the vastness of the ocean till you're standing on that shore yourself for the first time and really experiencing it. And so I think about it kind of in that way. And so I got really involved in, um, for me, you know, I started my, my journey in the sexual and relationship violence fields and, um, you know, healing from my own experiences of those pieces and really started to focus my work on working with queer and trans youth and the LGBTQ community about 10 years ago. And especially working with queer and trans youth in particular, seeing the incredible beauty and resiliency and capacity for hope in the midst of pain and hardship and abuse and trauma was so incredible and really just kind of specifically hearing from them. And I I still hear this to this day from my students at USD, but hearing from them how powerful it was for them to see an older queer person, because that was so non-existent in their life. Partially because we lost a lot of folks to everything from um, LGBTQ targeted violence to the HIV and AIDS epidemic. There are older queer people, but we are, we've lost a generation of folks because of uh, an inability of the system to act to protect us. And so seeing now, you know, for myself as a, as a teenager, I never really saw myself living past the age of 25. And then when I hit 25, I was like, oh crap, what do I do now? And then I hit 30 and I was like, oh crap, what do I do now? And then I hit 35 and I was like, oh my God. And then <laughs> students started calling me, you know, a yelder, a young elder is what we refer to uh, folks like myself in the community and realizing like, oh my God, when I show up as my full self, that allows other people to have that compassion for themselves and other people and say, you know what, I'm going to live life a little bit differently today. And so really my passion has been, you know, over the last, especially five years or so, really working to create long-term structures for queer wellness in San Diego and across the nation, working with friends in, you know, places like Appalachia um, or Arizona or across the U.S. to really help folks identify how can we work to increase our capacity for wellness and queerness in in safe and affirming ways. Well, and I think I I, I want to point one thing we taught we were talking about earlier today between before we the show started. But first of all, I want to say you know you're such a uh, you're so it's so emblematic your hope and healing, um, and and the fact that you share your personal story, which I imagine is a beacon of light for many of the students that you work with. But you were sharing how there used to be a law that if you were um, uh, a man, right, if you identified as a man and you were sexually assaulted, but if you were gay or trans, that there was no recourse for you. Yeah. And so can you share with us what you did in San Diego and how that's, that shifted? You and others. Yeah. I know you were by yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm, you know, to give a little historical context, the FBI definition of sexual assault or rape specifically did not include folks who identified as male, um, folks who did not have a vagina, essentially, to experience some type of uh, some type of assault in that way. And I, I won't get too specific on details, just because I want people to be able to stay in their zones. Um, But just to recognize the reality that the federal law by the FBI was written in a way that excluded masculine people and male cisgender males from reporting rape. And so what we found happening here in San Diego about eight years ago, there was a core group of people 
who were survivors who had experienced drug facilitated sexual assaults within our community and had gone to local law enforcement and had basically been dismissed and told, based on the identities you hold, sexual assault is not something that can even happen, right? And the federal law was backing that up. And so what ended up happening here in San Diego was there was a core group of folks, and one of those folks is Fernando Lopez, who is our executive director of San Diego Pride today, a dear friend of mine, Liat Wexler, who's in the Bay Area, UC Berkeley, doing some incredible work around sexual assault prevention on campuses. These folks came together and said, we have to do something. And so they created a task force, which I am a part of, and I've been a part of now for about seven years, um, which has been really, has been really powerful to experience, which we now call ourselves the LGBTQ survivor uh, plus survivor task force. And we are a group of local folks, whether we are community advocates, or we are doing this work professionally as providers or community members coming together to say, How do we create space, A, for people to just learn about what's actually happening in our community based on the numbers that we have, based on how we know sexual and relationship violence in particular is more likely to impact someone who's part of the LGBTQ community than other identities. Uh, We know especially our bi women, so our bisexual women and our bisexual men are at the highest risk for experiencing sexual and relationship violence over any other identity because of the biphobia that exists both in heterosexual communities and in queer spaces too. And so knowing all of these pieces and wanting us as providers to do better in how we show up for our, for our community, but also how we show up for our community members. So in addition to all of the work that we've done with providers, we have online trainings that people can access on demand on San Diego Pride's website. We also have community events where we work to just create a space that feels safer, that feels affirming in people's identities, where they can come together as survivors or community members and just be and connect together in safe ways. Um, Because we really don't have many spaces across the nation, but I think even in San Diego, we haven't created spaces where folks can just come together and engage in wellness practice, that it doesn't have to be this hard, difficult trauma dump It doesn't have to be this big hashing of painful experiences and can truly be a space where it's like, let's just come together and focus on how, how, what's helping us this week get through. I I love that, you know, in terms of someone who's really focusing on well-being in the work that I've done throughout my life. And that when you do that, you're also saying this, this is also true about, yes, there may have been the trauma, but oh my Mm -hmm. gosh, look at the, look at the resilience and the well-being you had to get through that situation or, oh my gosh, the friendships that you forged and, and the advocacy work, Kay, that you're doing. I mean, this is Mm -hmm. all part of the resiliency that I think is really important for us to also be aware of, of what's happening in the queer community, because oftentimes in the press, it's, it's not that focused is focused no. on, oh, this is more the negativity focus rather mm-hmm. rather than the resiliency focus. Yeah. Well, it's almost time for us to take our break. And when okay. we, yes, when we come back, um, Kay will talk to us more about um, kind of the current state of the anti-transgender um, and anti-LGBTQ plus laws that are happening and the impact on the community. And I guess, and really importantly, the kinds of things you can do to support a friend that can support someone who is in the community that is feeling like I'm just kind of a little bit more afraid. And what can I do to continue to support my well-being when I'm hearing all these things are happening and they're really talking about me and my life? 
Mm-hmm. So if we can um, have a little bit more, I think, discourse about this, it will be really important. So we will be back in um, just a couple minutes and we'll continue this lively, dynamic conversation with my dear friend and colleague, Kay Thomas. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. Um, this is Elaine miller Karras with Resiliency Within, and my guest today is Kay Thomas. We're talking about queer pride, and we're talking about the fact this is happening in San Diego, mm-hmm. like this weekend, right? Yes. On Saturday, there's going to be a lot of activities. But we're going to, we were talking a little bit, and I want to kind of go back to that conversation before the break, is that there have been just a, a lot of these um, anti-transgender and anti-LGBTQ laws, and can you just speak to a little bit about that and how to support, you know, your friends, colleagues who may be experiencing fear as a result of this, I guess, rash of recent legislative endeavors? Yeah. So I'll you know, kind of start with the first half. Um, so just this year alone in 2023, we've had over 650 anti-LGBTQ laws that have been proposed across 49 states in the U.S., That is wild. 80 laws have already passed, and that's actually more than double what we saw in 2022. And that's just as of like June 28th of this year. So already we've seen this 
extreme surge and there's a really hard focus specifically on transgender and gender non-conforming folks. Even though last year when there were uh, national surveys that were done, over 80% of Americans said that they actually support non-discrimination protections for many different identities. And so we're seeing things like banning on gender affirming healthcare, which research literally shows us is life-saving. Um, whether that is bans directly related to gender affirming care or bans related to things like reproductive justice and abortion, those all impact the LGBTQ community. They're directly related to how we access safe health care, how we access safe hormones. And unfortunately, there's also laws like banning things like literature related to queer and trans people in schools. And I always just like to remind people that um, the literature bans that are happening actually were similar to what Hitler engaged in in World War II. Hitler actually did not just imprison uh, folks who were Jewish identifying. He also imprisoned folks who were part of the LGBTQ community. He actually burned and attacked the, one of the first transgender clinics in the world that was in Germany at the time and erased all of the beautiful research and the historical information we have about folks there. And so I mentioned that just to say that this is not something that's new to our community. Unfortunately, being forced back into the closet, being dead named and misgendered, um, having our identities criminalized and outlawing uh, supportive safe school environments or even regulating or outlawing drag shows is not something that is new to us. But the reality is, is that the way that this shows up for people, whether we're talking about, um, you know, the recent scoutist decisions or we're talking about these laws that are being passed, you know, one of the things I, I always like to mention this quote, which is from um, the human rights campaign president, Kelly Robinson. And they said specifically, the amount of calls I get every day from parents asking how I can move to another state because I'd rather mourn my home than my child is real. Yeah. In terms of just the, what this means to um, to children. Right. To teens. children. Yeah. And, 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 and even people who are over the age of 18, but maybe are not living in a space where it is safe to engage in gender affirming care. And so we see that lack of access to both gender affirming care and even just supportive spaces. Um, we see things like, and this is, this is a newer piece, which is heartbreaking, but the reality that even pride-based events are often being priced out because insurance companies don't want the liability or the threat of violence to the LGBTQ community to even be on their radar. If I know that I have to insure you because you might have an active shooter show up to your site, I'm just not going to do it, which is heartbreaking, right? We know that right. in 2020, if, be, yeah, if, if can't I can't be, be with community. my community, right? right? Yeah. I can't celebrate who I am. I can't be visibly out and, and experiencing that place. And, you know, we saw so many examples of the ways that this this is not new to the pandemic or to COVID by any means, but the ways that COVID exasperated that process for many of our, our queer youth in particular. And so thinking about all of those pieces, it can feel really overwhelming of like, I don't even know where to jump in and help. I have a sibling who is bi. I have a friend who is trans and I don't really know what to say, right? And so how do you find that space to support this community, whether it is directly or indirectly? And I mean, I have a lot of ideas of ways that we can do that, but I'll give you well, the... I, I really want to hear some of that, but before yeah. we do that, I think it might be helpful because I, you know, I mean, and please correct me if I'm wrong, queer is an overarching, yes. talking about the entire community. Yes. Mm -hmm. But you know, I remember there are days that we would call, we'd say, oh, it's the LGBT. 
LGBTQ community, and yeah. now it's the LGBTQIA2S+. Yes, Can you yes. tell us what that means? Yes, I'm absolutely. sure a lot of us, myself included, I didn't know about the 2S. Yes, so- Okay, absolutely. Ahead. And you know, I love, I actually, you, if you're on Facebook live, you might be able to see my tattoo here, but I love um, bell hooks definition of queerness that it can be about, you know, who you're sexually attracted to or who you engage in sexual relationships. But queerness is really more about the self that's at odds with everything around it. And that has to invent and create and find a place to speak and to thrive and to live. And that's queer. That's the definition of queerness by bell hooks. And I always give that example of queerness. Yes. Is that kind of umbrella term. And so someone might identify as queer in relation to their sexual orientation or their gender identity um, or their relationship orientation as well. Um, But queerness is that umbrella term that just really implies that it's something other than the default identity. Um, And that LGBTQIA2S plus alphabet soup that we have, we're constantly expanding it because we want to be intentional about honoring all of the identities. You know, so we have L is lesbian, G is gay, B is bisexual, T is transgender, Q is queer or and or questioning. I is intersex, which I think is really important that we lift up the intersex community because all of these laws that we see on the books right now, banning gender affirming care, explicitly state that this does not apply to the intersex community and giving parents the ability to choose their child's gender at their time of birth, which mind you, we actually know statistically there are more people who are born intersex in the world than people with red hair. So just, when, so just can we just mm-hmm. pause for a second? So yeah. intersex means you're born with both um, potentially potentially might be manifestations. Bone, yeah. So you might be born with internal organs that are of different of different sexes. You might be born with external organs um, and pieces that are of different genders. You might appear to not have a gender at all based on what your genitalia look like at birth. And when we talk about sex assignments at birth, the, the myth of bio, it's a myth of biological sex because our sex is actually really determined not just on our chromosomes, which there's a lot of chromosomal variation, but it's also based on our hormone levels. It's based on our exposure to different um, environments over our lifetime as well. And so all of these play a very intricate role. And so it's not as easy as just saying male or female when someone is born. There's so much more to that gray area in between. And so Some states have actually moved towards places and saying, when a child is born with ambiguous genitalia, we're going to take a step back and wait. We're going to do testing. We're going to identify all of these pieces, the hormone levels, the genetic pieces, and then work with the parents to make a decision that feels right for the family. As opposed to what many states do currently and have for many years is just make the decision based on, well, this genitalia is easier for it to look like this than to look like that. Or surgically, I can do this or that. Or the parents said they want a girl, so it's going to be a girl then. Um, and the ways that that is incredibly damaging, we know from psychological research how damaging that is to folks and the lifelong struggles that they have, both physically and mentally around that piece. And so us being intentional about lifting up the intersex community, that there is nothing wrong with you and how you were born. Many people live wonderful, beautiful lives. I read a story about this man who was in his 60s and went in for an operation, and they discovered a fully formed set of ovaries in this man's body. He had lived his whole life 
He didn't know as a man, didn't even know it. Right. And so like, that's the beauty of science. We get to learn all these cool things, but also recognizing the reality that people are born beautifully and uniquely, and we don't have to change them necessarily. Or shame them. Or shame shame them, them, right? Let this child discover and, and understand who they are and who they want to be. And we'll go from there. But so I mentioned that because all of these gender affirming bands actually have specific provisions saying it's still okay for a parent to make the decision because we want your kid to be in the binary. And that's something that we're not talking about, the reality that it's not just about banning gender-affirming care. It's also about integrating systemically this need to have the gender binary. So so what does the, the A stand for? So that's the yes. A. The so a. the A stands, um, some folks have used it to say ally, but we like to say in the community, asexual or aromantic. So that's another group of folks that are often overlooked in our community. Folks who maybe are interested in having a romantic relationship, but not a sexual relationship as an example. That's that's one example. Um, there is a very wide range of experiences and definitions within folks who identify as asexual or aromantic as well. Um, and then the last one is 2S, uh, or second to last one is 2S, which stands for two-spirit. So the reality is, is that the binary did not exist within many indigenous cultures until colonization showed up. And two-spirit is a term that's been used more consistently um, since the late 70s, as an, or, late, or I think actually 90s. Um, I'm trying to think when that, uh, when that passed. Uh, but I say that to say that is a term that is specific to native and indigenous communities. If you are not part of those communities, do not use it because it would be problematic for you to to claim that identity. Um, But thinking about, again, the reality that this binary came from spaces of white supremacy, of colonization, of patriarchy, it wasn't inherent in many cultures until colonization began. And then we have the plus at the end because there are a ton of other smaller communities that we know of that have been around for many years, but maybe are starting to become more um, more relevant in current research or information or how they're showing up. And so our goal to really continue to create this continuum and this recognition that while we might say queer or LGBTQ, we're talking about many different communities with many different subtleties and differences within And so there really well. is that intention of inclusion. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Okay. absolutely. Well, that's very that's very helpful. Yeah. So thank you for explaining all that. So um so then the, the next question, you know, to get to is that, you know, what are some of your suggestions mm-hmm. how to support um the well-being of the queer community when all these laws and you know the recent SCOTUS decision, the Supreme Court decision, mm-hmm. I know was very um caused it caused a lot of distress. It did. It 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 really did. And I think Yeah, I mean, both the piece around um, affirmative action and the piece around uh, discriminating against LGBTQ folk within businesses, especially just to, to, you know, starting, I think first, the first thing that I always say is get, get educated, like do the research, do what you can, go to the Human Rights Campaign website, for example, to learn more about the current laws and the state of LGBTQ people in your rights. Um, I mean, and their rights in your state specifically. Uh, but with that, I think I also want to name the reality that this recent Supreme Court decision around discrimination was based on a hypothetical situation. It was based on something that hasn't even happened yet. 
And even the person that this this individual was saying that she didn't want to make a website for actually is a cisgender heterosexual man who lives in San Francisco, who is married with kids and is actually a web designer himself. So just that the absurdity of how we could even consider this to be a valid court decision is bizarre, first and foremost. But I say that to say. I I think that's important. I mean, you know that my husband, Jim, is a judge and he was sharing that with me, that it was hypothetical. And, And his understanding is that you couldn't bring hypothetical situations to the Supreme Court to Correct. be adjudicated. And so I said, well, how did that happen then? He said, well, I don't know how that slipped in, but it, in what his understanding of the law was, it was not supposed to happen. So you're more or less yeah. saying that that is true from your perspective as well. Absolutely. And I think even the the man who is listed, I can't remember his last name, but his first name is Steve, the man who is listed, didn't even know that his name and identity were being used in this court case until it had been on the dockets for many years. Like he just found out in the last six months. So it's it's mind boggling, right? And so I say that to say like, first and foremost, get educated. I am the last person to want to sit down and read Supreme Court decisions. It makes no sense to me. And simultaneously, (laughs) I have a million places I know I can reach for where other people who are legal scholars have read the work and can and explain it to me online. Human rights campaign is a perfect example of that. But to get educated, to not just rely on what you're seeing on social media or what you're hearing from your friends or you're hearing from your pastor, because unfortunately, all of those folks could be getting it completely wrong, depending on the, the source that it's coming from. So really start there. And then from there, as you're getting educated, challenge yourself to really explore what are the current beliefs that you hold and maybe biases that you hold against the LGBTQ community. What is your idea of freedom and liberation? Is it for all people or is it only for some? Does your idea of feminism actually include all people or just cisgender women, right? What does this really look like? I always go back to the Maya Angelou quote, right? None of us are free until all of us are free. And so how do you explore what you're learning with how you see the world around you? You've got to connect the two. It's not just enough to read the article and say, check, I'm done, right? How do you internalize that? So one of the things I'm hearing from you is just the educational piece is really important. Mm -hmm. But let's say you've got a son, you've got a friend, you've got someone who you is beloved to you and they're suffering. You are a therapist. You have really done a deep dive into, you know, the um, somatic aspect of trauma Mm -hmm. or just, you know, how do you, what do you say? Yeah. Give us your wisdom. This is really important because I know your wisdom is going to help many people. Okay. So there are a couple of things that really come to mind. I think, again, I go back to the, you know, if you have a family member, a friend, a loved one who's part of this community, don't rely on them to teach you about the community, right? Still do your best to get educated, read the books, listen to the podcasts, search out the information that you can best find. But I think there are other ways that showing up for queer people in your life in tangible ways are helpful. So it's not just enough to hear people tell me like, oh, well, I'm an ally. To be honest, at this point, I don't need an ally. I need an accomplice. Like I need somebody who's going to get into that good trouble with me, who's going to show up on those front lines, protest with me. But also to see people say, you know what? I donated 50 bucks to my local LGBTQ organization that's doing work with youth in the area because I know how important this is to you. 
It's also things like researching, for example, here in the state of California in 2024, we've got a massive election cycle coming up and we are trying to get on the ballot specifically a law that protects same-sex marriage because Prop 8 ain't going to do it. And so how do you get involved in that process? And I think thinking on a more personal level, reaching out to those people that you love that are part of the community. And it, I would, I, you know, don't ask a question like, how are you doing today? Or what can I do to help? Because to be honest, when people reach out to me with those things, I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) I'm so overwhelmed by what's happening. But what it really looks like in those spaces of community care is somebody sending me a care package and being like, I was just thinking about you. Or I bought this shirt because I knew you would love it. Or I sent you this note of encouragement. Um, Many of my friends, we are connected through various social media platforms. They'll send me, you know, memes and funny posts that they know are going to make me laugh. Um, They send me, you know, little text messages throughout the day to say, hey, I'm thinking about you. I'm here if you want to talk. And then I think the other piece that really stands out for me is thinking about your circle of influence. So maybe you're not a senator, you're not a CEO of a company, you don't feel like you have a lot of influence, but we do. Really think about where's your voice most impactful? Is that with your family, with your social circle, in your professional sphere? When we show up, when our sibling is misgendered during Thanksgiving dinner and say, hey, actually that's, that's not their name, that's not their pronouns, right? When, when we hold that space, when we don't force the person who's experiencing the marginalization to consistently do the, act, the activism and the advocating, when we figure out what is my circle of influence, my sphere of influence, where do I have the most space to make an impact? Maybe that's your church group. Maybe that's, you know, I have conversations with my grandparents all the time. Do they agree with some of my identities? Absolutely not. And simultaneously, we get to sit in the space of talking about the dignity and the respect of the human being. Um, I grew I up in- imagine that your grandparents dearly love you. Yes, absolutely. Right. Yes. And I, in sitting in that space of having those hard conversations of saying things like, you know, grandma, Jesus ate with the sinners and the prostitutes. Jesus hung out with the lepers. Jesus spent time with the people that probably everybody else would not be a fan of. And Jesus also (laughs) experienced righteous anger and civil disobedience by going into that temple and messing stuff up. Right. And so giving these examples of saying, how did, how did, how would Jesus show up to a non-binary person? Just because it's not in scripture doesn't mean it doesn't exist. That inclusion that you're talking about, that's, Mm -hmm. I think Jesus was all about that. I want our listeners Mm -hmm. to know that I'm going to be interviewing um, someone from the School of Theology, yes. um, Keith Mahanick, um, next next week. And he's going to talk a, a little bit about this theme and we'll, we'll do a little deeper dive in it. But yeah. I think that's important that, but I think the love, and yes. I want to just emphasize that, yes. um, you're a very loving person. I've seen your generosity to many people, Kay. And I imagine your grandparents, from what you're saying, you can have the dialogue with them. Mm-hmm. And having the dialogue doesn't mean that we always agree, but it's no. underlying that we're showing up with love and compassion yes. and being with that person. Even if yes. I don't understand why you do the things you do, Kay, but I love you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's that coming back to that space again of how you show up for those in your life who are queer, trans, in the LGBTQIA 2S plus community is leaning into that compassion over comprehension first. How do I just 
show up and engage in hard conversations. Unfortunately, I say this all the time to my students, but unfortunately, we are not houseplants. We don't grow when we're comfortable. We have to be a little bit uncomfortable. We got to find that growth edge. And so this is an opportunity to do that. How do I find that growth edge and hold that space of compassion for people who might be very different than myself? And in that space, maybe I do gain some understanding. Maybe I do gain some comprehension, but more than anything else, I find a space for human connection. I think that human connection is so important. You know, and I want to say a couple things about advocacy. You know, I'm in my 70s now. Mm-hmm. I have a really dear friend um, who has been with her her wife as long as I think I've been with my husband. I'm going to celebrate my 49th wedding anniversary. Oh my gosh. I know. We got married very Incredible. Young. We, met as, we met as teenagers. What can I say? But my friend, I remember talking to her after um, she got to marry her wife mm-hmm. not too many years ago. Yeah. And, and just the meaning of that. And I remember having the conversation of never imagining it could happen. And yet it did happen because there were advocates who said, this is right. This is what we need. This is what has to happen when we have that compassion, empathy. And, you know, I'm going to, you know, use the words that you used of Jesus, the inclusion. And that how that changes our, our society, our families. And really, again, we're talking about love. What else is true? Mm-hmm. Hey, we have, this is, ha- this is really skipped by. <laughs> Are there any um, parting words that you would like to leave our audience today as we finish our conversation? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that comes to mind for me is, again, that space of compassion over comprehension and just staying curious about the connection and the spaces of similarity more than the spaces of difference. And really exploring for yourself, how do I show up for other people in my community the way I want them to show up for me? And I guess what I want to say too, it's kind of like the golden rule, do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to thank you, Kay, for coming. And thank you for having me. Also, I have learned so much from you. You are my teacher. There was a time when I was your teacher, but I think yes, you you're... still are my teacher, Elaine. <laughs> no, no, no. You still you are. are. You still because are. Honestly, you know, I, I I'm learning, and you're helping me understand the terminology and just to be more present in mm-hmm. in a way to be more supportive. So thank you for that. Thank you. So my audience, until we meet again, please reach out to someone that you love, and maybe it was it's with that curiosity that Kay is talking about. I'm here for you. You know. You remember that that trip we took? Remember that that song we loved? Those kinds of things that can brighten up our days. And when we're feeling afraid or are fearful, those things really do work. So remember what else is true. And until we meet again, this is Elaine Miller Karras with with deep gratitude to Kay Thomas for coming and being with me today. And deep gratitude to all of you as you go through your lives. And I know run into things all the time, but remember your goodness and your compassion till we meet again. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon.
Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com.